You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi. Hello, Mr. Tippins. Uh, welcome to the uh, Sophia audience. Uh, I'm here with uh, my good friend, uh, Dan Tippins, and um, we're going to, uh, going to uh, have a discussion uh, about rationalism in philosophy. Um, why don't we do our introductions first, and then we can get started. Dan, you want to go first? Uh, sure. I am Daniel Tippins. I'm an NYU Medical Center employee. I work in a um, cancer immunology lab. Um, and I'm also a co-founder and editor of The Electric Agora with my dear friend Dan Kaufman here. Uh, and I'm Daniel Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. And uh, as Dan Tippins just said, I am also a co-founder uh, and editor of The Electric Agora. Really, The Electric Agora is a project that, uh, that, that Dan, Dan and I uh, uh, conceived and created together. Uh, and it's an online magazine, I'm sure, as many people know, where, where we, uh, just, where we uh, uh, post art essays and videos and uh, short reviews and even some splenetic provocation style pieces. Um, uh, crowd favorite, man. But. Yeah, a crowd favorite, although it also gets us a little bit of flack like my most recent one did. Um, but today we are going to uh, actually talk, have a conversation about an essay I published not long ago on the Electric Agar called Excessive Reason, in which I argue that um, the mainline philosophical tradition is defined by a certain kind of rationalistic outlook, uh, one of which uh, I have been both in this essay and in, and in published professional work that I've done, of which I've been uh, relatively critical. Uh, and uh, the, the, the essay evoked enough interest, and uh, I think you, Dan, have enough questions, criticisms, thoughts on it that I thought it would be a, a good idea to maybe develop the ideas further. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. And um, this will also be good because I suspect there were probably several questions that I'll have that other readers had when they read through your essay. Because it's, it's a lot to take in for um, kind of a newcomer to the topic. So this should be good. Okay, and just so everybody knows, uh, Dan is in a laboratory. And so he's periodically going to have to fiddle with things above him or else a, um, a plexiglass shield is going to fall around him and release toxic nerve gas that will uh, destroy every microbe in its in its vicinity. Is that correct? Yeah. So in other words, um, you should totally pay more in taxes for this research. Otherwise, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I gotcha. Um, so how do you, how do you think we should start? Uh, how should we get into this? Um, so as you said in your essay, you talk about um, well, your title is excessive reason, but what you're criticizing, at least um, if we had to put this um, kind of movement in a in a word, is rationalism in mainstream analytic philosophy. And so I guess um, it'd be good to first start with what you mean by rationalism and where you see this idea being deployed in mainstream analytic philosophy. Okay, so um, yes, I mean, the, the, we need to do some disambiguation because the word rationalism has more than one use in philosophy. And so we want to be very, I want to be very clear about what I'm not talking about. Um, there is um, in philosophy uh, a capital R rationalism which is associated with one of the two major movements in the Enlightenment, um, the movement that's associated with Descartes, Leibniz, and Spinoza. It's contrasted with the empiricist tradition, which is uh, identified with uh, John Locke, uh, Bishop Berkeley, and David Hume. 
Um, and that is not the rationalism I'm talking about. Um, what I'm talking about is a small r rationalism, um, which in my view characterizes all of mainline philosophy. Um, and now let me say a word about what I mean by mainline philosophy, because that also needs to be disambiguated. Um, I'm not, the, the, the outlook I'm talking about really is not one you can identify with the ancient Greeks. Um, it's not that they didn't place a high uh, emphasis on reason, but as, as will become clear by the way I talk about this, um, theirs is a much more mixed, complex, um, uh, 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 heterogeneous sort of outlook uh, on, the human, on the human template. Um, um, and on human ideals. Um, when, when I talk about the mainline philosophical tradition, I'm really talking about the mainline tradition of the Enlightenment. And so that would include all the characters that I just mentioned, Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza, Locke, Berkeley, Hume, Kant, um, Bentham, Mill. Um, and then I also mean by the mainline tradition um, the continuation of that historical tradition in the analytic philosophy tradition of the 20th century, for people who are not aware, although much of the, the blogging heads audience is very well educated and knows this already, but just for the sake of completion, um, after Kant in the 19th century, philosophy in the West underwent a kind of a split, a, a, a divergence of directions. Um, and you have the beginning of what's called the continental tradition that you would identify with people in the 19th century like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard uh, and Schopenhauer. Uh, and the analytic tradition, which you would identify with people like Bentham and Mill, um, and then in the 20th century with the logical positivists, the ordinary language philosophers, and then after World War II, the Quinians and all the post-Quinians. Um, 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 and what I'm saying is that the mainline tradition in terms of the Enlightenment and then the analytic thread that followed the Enlightenment is largely rationalistic. Um, uh, something that's not true, incidentally, of the continental philosophy, of, of the continental, very much untrue of the continental tradition. Yeah. So that's the basic framework. I was going to say, there's, um, in addition to just enumerating the um, philosophers, the famous philosophers who fall in the different traditions, there are some other ways you can classify them which might be relevant to the discussion. Um, one, that, what's, the one that's always struck me is what seems like a difference in methodology, um, um, in addition to subject matter, but in methodology... Um, Analytic philosophers have at least tended to emphasize complete clarity. Sometimes this means um, logical clarity, putting premise, premise, conclusion out um, in, in logical um, form. And continental philosophers have not really adopted that as much. Um, right. They allow for much more interpretation of their text. Um, for kind of a little bit more of an intuitive feel of what they're saying as you go along, as opposed to so basically, they're allowing the reader to um, kind of work through the issues with them, whereas as opposed to the analytic philosopher is telling the reader what they're getting at exactly. Right. Um, and this might have relevance later because, yeah, I mean, that it seems like that methodology that analytic philosophers employed might have kind of led to this kind of, or at least motivated this rationalism that you're talking about. Or you could view it as an expression of it. Um, um, mm -hmm. um, uh, the only tradition I can think of in the continental tradition that is rationalistic in the way that I'm talking about is the structuralist tradition. Um, um, but that's only one slice of continental philosophy and it's not the biggest slice. 
um, the phenomenological traditions and the post-structuralist uh, tradi tra traditions being uh, being larger, more prominent. Um, and so, yes, I actually, it's nice that you brought that up because I actually take the logical and analytical rigor of the uh, mainline analytic tradition um, to be an expression of precisely the rationalism that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So I guess then the thing I need to do now is I sort of need to sort of say what what I mean what 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 this rationalism consists of. Um, so why don't I go ahead and um, and and at least uh, sort of outline um, uh, a, a few of the key characteristics. And let me sort of be be clear about what I what I'm what I'm going to do next. Um, I'm going to say what I take the chief elements of the small r rationalistic rationalist outlook to be. And then what I want to say is that this outlook has led to the mainline philosophical tradition idealizing certain human characteristics. That is, that out of this rationalism comes a picture of human nature, uh, specifically of human belief and human action yeah. that uh, is influenced and determined by this rationalism, right? So, so there's going to be sort of two parts of this. What are the elements of rationalism on the one hand, and then on the other hand, what is the sort of the picture of the human ideal that follows from this rationalistic picture? Um, so the, um, in terms of what I mean by rationalism, I mean something like this. That is that the idea that both human belief and action, um, in order to be deemed acceptable, must have some sort of rational justification or warrant. Okay. Um, and so... The idea is that the only legitimate reason to accept a belief is if one has rational grounds for believing it. And the only acceptable or legitimate reason for acting is if one has a rational reason for acting. And by a rational reason, what is t in terms of belief, by a rational reason, what is typically meant is either some sort of empirical evidence or some sort of inductive or inductive uh, proof. Okay. Um, with respect to action, um, the idea is that um, our actions should, uh, should, should stem from some sort of a rational consideration. Now, that can either be some consideration of utility, right, uh, of good outcomes, um, which is rational because one can tie it to a sort of a scientific picture of human nature. Bentham does that. He says that the reason why um, we should we should consider considerations of uh, utility to be overriding is precisely because utility is a fundamental human imperative, as we're as we're told by science. Um, the other way of rationally justifying action is to um, to base it in some sort of clearly logically rigorous conception of reason or right inclination, uh, which is what Kant essentially does. Okay. Um, now, given this conception of the legitimate grounds of belief and action, certain things are clearly ruled out as not legitimate grounds, right? So the idea that one would believe something because of tradition, let's say, or that one should believe something because the belief is emotionally satisfying um, uh, or emotionally compelling, these are ruled out by the rationalists as illegitimate sources of belief, um, and the idea that one should act on the basis of either sentiment um, or of what Edmund Burke called prejudice, by which we don't mean discriminatory attitudes in a toxic way, but prejudice in the sense of um, 
uh, act on grounds that have a sort of a, a historical uh, and, a, and, a, and a customary sort of uh, basis, um, these are also considered to be uh, illegitimate grounds for action and belief. So that's my picture of rationalism. And I didn't know if you wanted to say anything about that before I talk it's, about the it's, ideals. It's kind of interesting that like, um, you know, critical thinking is a course that you're taught early on in um, college. And I think it might inadvertently breed this kind of rationalism in its students. Because, um, you know, Hold on one second. You're freezing. Oh, okay. Are you there? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so you, you froze for a moment, but just go ahead. Keep going uh, okay. where, from where you left off. You, I just want to keep you on your toes, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so one thing I was mentioning, I was just talking about critical thinking, um, yeah. of course, that you take in college. And, um, you know, you learn all of the fallacies, the, the bad forms of reasoning, and all of them include the very things that you're mentioning, the rationalist picture. That's right. Um, Things like argument from authority, things like argument from emotion. I mean, you can spell that out in various ways. Ad uh, hominem. Ad hominem. Right. Um, yeah. And, uh, and genetic fallacy, right? Right. Uh, which would include some kind of historical reasoning. Um, yes. And so, yeah, it's just kind of interesting to note that even now, at least, it seems that one of the fundamental classes you take early on in analytic philosophy training is critical thinking, which strongly condemns the use of these... Um, tools of thinking or these ways of going about believing and acting that, um, you know, you've just said the rationalist criticizes. That's right. And, and, and actually, in this case, um, there is, of course, a connection to the ancient world. This is precisely sort of the criticism that Socrates makes of the sophists, right? Um, 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 and so there is a sort of an ancient pedigree to this, dis this distinction or this, this divide between the idea of rational grounds for belief and action as being the sort of the legitimate grounds and all these other sorts of um, um, kinds of reasons that are the result of either emotional appeals, rhetorical appeals, etc., as being in some sense dirty uh, or tainted. Um, um, and, uh, and so, yes, I, I, I agree with you. I think that even today we are training people in philosophy to be rationalists in the way that I'm suggesting. Um, now, whether that's good or bad, depends upon what we think of the um, sort of ideals that are based on this. And so uh, maybe I should sort of say a few things about what those ideals are. Right? Yeah, and maybe um, it's just worth noting quickly, um, one, one reason um, you might breed rationalists um, in philosophy and analytic philosophy is um, if you have a certain conception of what the goal of philosophy is. Because no one would deny, for example, that you should be rationalist about belief when it comes to scientific knowledge. That's which right. You would say, and so if you had a similar view of philosophy in terms of knowledge acquisition of you know facts about the world and, and such and such, um, then you'd probably want to be a rationalist there as well. Right. Right. And so you know that really then is the the the, the eight hundred dollar question is whether indeed um, the sort of rationalism which is completely appropriate within certain areas of inquiry, whether it's in a sense, in a sense generalizable, right? Um, um, because one thing I'm not going to say is I'm, I'm, I'm not a romanticist, so I'm not going to reject the idea of rational grounding of belief and of action. But what I'm going to say is that, the, that, that, that rational grounding of belief and action is appropriate in certain scenarios 
um, but is not something that's generalizable or generally true. And more, more, more generally still, I reject the picture that ultimately reason is what is defining of human nature. I mean, because that's sort of an underlying uh, a sort of presumption of all of this is that human beings are, are, are defined by their capacity for reason and that to be rational is the, is the human ideal. Um, and let's just be very clear before I get into the specific ideals, what, what that means. What it really means is that as far as mainline philosophy is con tr concerned, truth is the ultimate end of all inquiry, right? The reason why we engage in inquiry and why we pursue uh, belief acquisition is to believe true things, right? To, to acquire knowledge. And similarly, the ultimate purpose of activity, the ultimate end of all activity um, is to fulfill one's, one's duty to the right and the good, right? Uh, and that therefore um, uh, ethics winds up being uh, the over, the over ethical considera considerations wind up being the overriding reason for acting. So truth is the overriding reason for believing and duty is the override re overriding reason for acting. So those, th those two fundamental, in my view, ideas about the purpose of inquiry and activity come out of this rationalist picture. And they do, in my view, um, imply a number of what we might call virtues, right? Distinctive uh, rationalist virtues. So one of these um, is, dis is disinterestedness, right? So the idea that we should be impartial in both our beliefs and our conduct um, is a very strong idea uh, in mainline philosophy. That is that uh, in inquiry, we should go wherever the evidence lead. We should not prejudge anything or come to inquiry with any preconceived notions. And in action, we ought to be always equitable and fair in the way that we deal with everyone around us. Um, so that's, that's one ideal or virtue that comes out of the rationalist picture. Another one, and it's very closely related, is dispassionateness, right? That the ideal state of a person is one of relative dispassion, because only if one is dispassionate can one uh, uh, unproblematically pursue the truth without adulteration and um, pursue the right and the good without adulteration. Um, a third ideal is autonomy. Um, and the idea there is that we can only be free when we're not bound by um, uh, externals, right? So we're not, when we're not bound, if we're bound by custom or tradition or habit um, we're, or sentiment, we're viewed in the mainline tradition as not really being free. This is most associated with Kant, but to a lesser degree, other uh, people like Bentham and Mill are going to want to say this also. Um, and um, a fourth virtue is consistency and fairness. And so what this means, and this I think follows from disinterestedness and dispassion, and one of the one of the main uh, things that follows from consistency and fairness being a virtue, is that um, inconsistency is one of the biggest faults that one can have. Right, to be inconsistent in one's belief or to be inconsistent in one's tr uh, treatment of others is to uh, is to violate this this principle of this ideal of consistency and fairness. And then finally. Um, I, I believe that, that the rationalist outlook entails a kind of perfectionism, both a, uh, a, 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 an epistemic perfectionism, that is that we seek to have rational grounds for all of our beliefs, not just some of them, 
and a kind of moral for perfectionism that we always strive to um, to obey duty above all else, right? Above every other consideration, that notion that duty is overriding is a kind of perfectionism. So these are what I take to be the ideals that follow from the rationalist picture. This is what I take to be the sort of the the, the view of human nature and and of 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 what the what the ideal human being is. Um, and as you know, and as I said in the essay, I have a lot of problems with a lot of a lot of these ideas, and so. Um, we can then get to those, but I'm assuming you have questions or thoughts about these uh, about these ideals that I've laid out. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, just um, just one quick comment. I'm not exactly sure if this is going to bear too much relevance, but I thought it at least might be worth bringing up. There's this there's this new topic um, that's coming up in epistemology, which is um, the topic of moral encroachment on knowledge. Is what it's called. Explain that because the audience may not know what it means. Knowledge. So the idea is um, there are certain times when we're trying to acquire beliefs about the world, um, true beliefs about the world, where the content of the belief could be morally hazardous. So, for example, um, you might ask a question like, is there such a thing as a racist, empirically true belief? Right. So Do you mean for, like, the, like, like the bell curve, that sort of thing? Right. Yeah. So yeah. let's. Yes. Yeah, so, or, or something like you know, we can take a much much more simple example. Something like let's say we f we find evidence that contained within you know um, Hispanic genes or something. Um, there's evidence that there's a gene for like lesser intelligence or something like that. Okay. Um, and the idea is here, most of us would not want to in. We almost don't want to endorse that belief, even if all of the evidence were to point in that direction. Yeah. Why? Because it's kind of a morally hazardous belief to have, right? It could be wielded in terrible moral ways um, and do, uh, yeah, just have some morally problematic um, implications. Right. And so the idea is with moral encroachment, the idea is when you um, kind of run moral risks in acquiring beliefs, um, the amount of evidence that you need to, before you can believe, um, that evidence is supporting a specific potential, like morally hazardous conclusion. That amount of evidence is greater. Like the threshold of evidence that you need before you can claim knowledge about a certain claim, um, kind of is is increased. And I guess um, so. This is a, this is kind of a case where the epistemic and the moral um, norms kind of conflict, right? Where they come into conflict. And so I guess maybe one of my questions for you would be like. Um, what do you think the rationalist would say about something like this, where the ideal of action and the ideal of belief kind of come into conflict? Where, yeah. you know what I mean? I'm just curious. I don't yeah, know. I mean, those are inter it's an interesting case. And I mean, you don't have to hypothesize. I mean, um, back in the 90s, Charles Murray and I forget the other guy's name, Herrenstein or something like that, wrote this book called The Bell Curve yeah. that purported to show, to give scientific, social scientific evidence that um, that Amer that American blacks are uh, uh, are are worse off than than whites in terms of intelligence, right? Yeah. And this created a huge firestorm. Um, as it turns out, it's not quite the best case in the world because then an awful lot of question was raised about the empirical uh, validity of the thesis, about the quality of the data about the inferences that they drew from the data. And so there, there, was, there wasn't a clear example of where there was overwhelming consensus that the empirical case had been made and the problem was just that we're skittish about saying it. Um, um, 
I do think, however, that that you're right in the sense that um, the rational, you know, the rationalist ideal um, does have the potential for a kind of internal conflict. Yeah. Um, not just not just between, let's say, belief and uh, uh, action, as in the case of that you just mentioned. Um, what you know, given that what we believe is true. Is that going to lead us to do bad things, right? Um, um, but also, even just within the realm of action, right? So you see these sorts of moral purists cutting each other to pieces and through these sort of intramural sort of quarrels. So I'm thinking, you know, for example, of the recent dust up between um, hardcore feminists and uh, trans rights activists over Caitlyn Jenner and over, you know, uh, co-ed bathrooms. And, you know, there were actually a number of very, uh, very committed, very venerable old guard feminists who sort of balked at this. And they were absolutely savaged by the, um, the trans activists for whom um, uh, doing right, you know, being, 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 being right with regard to trans issues uh, was more important than being right with regard to feminist issues uh, and vice versa. And so I, I think that it's always a danger with any kind of perfectionism that it really makes any kind of accommodation very, very difficult, right? Because um, the perfectionism pulls you so strongly in a single direction that if you have, you know, because we're complex, uh, if if if, the, if there's more than one thing that you're perfectionist about, there's the danger that it may pull you in opposite directions, and the perfectionism really prevents you from sort of qualifying and compromising so that you can accommodate both. I also think it has uh, problems. Uh, it, it has problems for, for for political coalition building. Um, and actually, I actually in the most recent provocations piece that I published, I get at this a little bit. Um, the sense in which. Um, um, uh, political coalitions can be pulled apart because of a certain kind of uh, perfectionism on the part of the people uh, inside them, um, uh, and, and so and so I, I think that what you're describing is very real. It's a very real and it's an it's example where what might seem like a very abstract point that is about rationalism and perfectionism, you can really see the actual manifestation of how that of how that abstract point really has 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 real cash value, real real uh, real consequences. Right. Yeah. So maybe, um, maybe you want, might want to talk about how uh, rationalism kind of plays out in ethical philosophy and political philosophy and um, epistemology more specifically, and then we can start getting some of the uh, maybe disagreements that you and I have on this issue. Right. Okay. So, so that, that's great. So um, let me give you one sort of an example of each. So I'm going to give an example of um, the way that rationalism plays out in epistemology. I'm going to give an example of the way that rationalism plays out in uh, ethics. And I'll give an example of the way that rationalism plays out in political philosophy, right? So in epistemology, um, you actually, um, you see the, the consequences of the rationalism in the very nature of the discipline, right? The overwhelming um, amount of work in epistemology that's been done in the mainline tradition has been the attempt to give some account of rational warrant right? yeah. of what it means to justify a belief of what knowledge consists of. Right. And this, this um, inevitably um, winds up cent centering focus upon what constitute rational reasons. Right. Um, and so you have uh, 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 
foundationalists, you have empiricists, you have internalists, you have externalists, you have all these positions um, all over the map. You have the fights over over the Gettier cases, over the so-called Gettier cases. Um, um, uh, but if you actually ask, well, what is this all about? What are all these arguments and what are all these fights and what are all these papers about? They're all about trying to give an account of what constitutes of what constitutes rational grounds for believing something. Do you need to go for a second? They, they, they all about ultimately what constitutes the rational grounds for believing something. Um, there is a very small minority tradition in uh, the, 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 there's a small minority uh, 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 group within that tradition that wants to talk about the limits of reason, that wants to talk about the extent to which rational justification um, is in a sense uh, uh, contained within a larger sphere of non-rational uh, consideration that is probably most famously associated with Hume, right? But this is a minority position, and it's one that has even less representation in the, the, the modern, the contemporary analytic tradition than it had in the Enlightenment, right? When it wasn't just Hume, there were others uh, like Thomas Reed and the whole Scottish naturalist tradition that uh, went this way. In the 20th century, the only person I can think of who really um, accepts this idea of, of serious epistemic limit is Wittgenstein, uh, the later Wittgenstein, okay? Um, so that's, that's, that's a little a brief word about how rationalism is manifested in epistemology. Um, it's manifested in, in that it sort of defines the subject, right? Um, in ethics, rationalism is manifested... Um, Can I ask you a quick question? Yes, yes, please, yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, there are, there are typically three views I've been familiar with, three dominant views I've been familiar with in epistemology, the coherentist, the foundationalist, and the um, infinitist. And um, typically, coherentism. Or so, oh, so I guess we should spell these out. The idea is something's like something like um, the foundationalist believes that all justification derives from a kind of a foundation of axiom beliefs upon which you derive you justify all further beliefs. But the foundational beliefs themselves are not further justified by more beliefs. They're the foundation. That's Their right. justification begins and kind of in a sense where it stops. Right. Right. Um, the coherentist holds that justification resides, justification for belief resides in a set of beliefs cohering with one another. So the idea is, you know, your belief is justified if and only, you know, if and only if it coheres with some, you know, your set of beliefs that you have um, about the world. Your other, your, you know, the rest the, of your beliefs you have. The other justified beliefs. Yeah. Right. yeah. And then yeah. infinitism, which is the, the definitely the least popular view, <laughs> is the view that um, justification does go on forever. Um, meaning there is always a further belief to justify any particular belief and justification never ends. It infinitely, infinitely goes down. Right. Um, and there are only, I think there are only a couple of people who actually buy into infinitism nowadays. Um, but the idea is most people have gone for coherentism and foundationalism precisely because, um, they find infinitism to be untenable. Right, and right. the reason they find it untenable is because their thought is, it's almost like a reductio, right? An ad infinitum argument, and like usually an ad infinitum argument that some um, something goes on ad infinitum is a reductio or a yeah. problem for a position, right? Yeah. And the idea is the infinit the infinitist holds that justification just never ends; it goes yeah. on forever. Yeah. And um, so the foundationalists, the coherentists, they aren't happy happy with this. That seems um, uh, you know not plausible, and so they take two two positions to 
um, uh, circumvent this problem. You know, the foundationalist says, foundationalist says justification bottoms out. The coherentist says um, you don't have an infinite, you know, an infinite amount of beliefs justifying one another. You have a, co- a coherent little right. circle. Right, right, right. Um, and so I guess what I wanted to ask was, um, do you think, so if it's the case that most philosophers are foundationalists or coherentists, um, is it the case that that's inconsistent with them being rationalists? No, no, I think, I think that those, I think both foundationalism and coherentism are rationalist positions. Um, um, neither of them accepts the idea that we should allow, accept, that we should accept beliefs that have no justification. And we have to be very careful about how we characterize the foundationalists because the way you characterize them actually is consistent with some of the things that the later Wittgenstein says in Uncertainty, who is definitely not a rationalist by any any stretch of the imagination. It's important to understand that for the rational, that for the foundationalist, the basic beliefs, the foundational beliefs, require no external justification. That is, they don't need to be inferred or or evidenced by appeal to anything else. But that said, it is not the case that they are held non-rationally. That is, the reason they don't require external justification is because they have come some kind of internal justification. And typically this takes the form either of saying that they're indubitable or that they're incorrigible or that they're infallible or some variation thereupon. They have a special status. That is, they're so rational, they're so obviously rational that they don't require any further appeal. That's sort of the idea. Um, And this, this of course, most famously is is Descartes' position um, um, uh, uh, that he articulates in the first first, uh, two, two meditations of the Meditations of First Philosophy. So I want to make very clear, both the foundations and the coherentists are rationalists in the sense that I described. They're not, going to, they're not going to say that a belief is legitimate unless it is rationally warranted. They simply differ as with regard to what the structure of that rational warrant looks like. For the yeah. foundationalist, that structure is ultimately linear. Uh, and for the, foundation, for the coherentist, it's holistic, right? Uh, but both cases, um, uh, what they're talking about is rational warrant. And uh, thus, they, still, they, 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 they fall within the broad rationalist picture that I've, that I've drawn. Yeah. Good. Okay. Then uh, let's, uh, let's move on. Okay. So with regard to ethics, um, the way that rationalism is manifested um, in ethics um, is um, you can see it in the, in, in two ways. First of all, you can see it in the, in the dominant theories. Okay. So the dominant theories in philosophy in, in ethics are utilitarianism and some version of Kantian deontology, right? These are the dominant positions. I'm not saying there aren't any others, but th- this probably makes up for 90% of the ethicists. Um, you know, virtue ethics is making a comeback has been for, for, for a few decades now. Um, but I'm not under the impression that the um, hegemony of, of utilitarianism and Kantian deontology has been broken. Um, and so, so both Kantianism and utilitarianism are rationalist moral theories in that they um, offer and demand rational grounds for our conception of duty, right? Right, so they both give a rational theory, a theoretical explanation of what duty consists of. For the for the for the for the utilitarian, duty consists of um, 
uh, being uh, obedient to the demands of utility, that is, uh, 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 human welfare, right? Uh, and um, in the case of the Kantian, uh, it's rationally grounded in a notion of the rational, autonomous, free will, right? Um, they are also rationalistic, in, they also are rationalistic in that they entail precisely the, the perfectionism that I take to be um, uh, one of the uh, rationalist virtues, right? The moral perfectionism that I take to be one of the rationalist virtues. And so both the Kantian and the utilitarian think that duty is overriding. That is that um, whenever we are considering how we should act, um, the moral consideration is always the overriding consideration. So the moral consideration for the utilitarian and the Kantian cannot be overridden, or should not be overridden by considerations of practicality, by considerations of personal relationship, by, by any sort of, right? This is why, this is why um, they both have a very strong emphasis on disinterestedness in moral judgment, right? Right, so, 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 so when I go about deciding how I ought to act, I can only act upon what reason tells me my duty is and can't act and shouldn't act upon any other consideration. So if duty tells me, as the utilitarian says, that it's better to help five people than to help one, all other things being equal, okay, then the fact that the one is my daughter should be irrelevant to my consideration as to how to act. Um, the utilitarian is very clear about this. Uh, and similarly with the Kantian, um, with some with some minor except with some minor exception, obviously, because like what, uh, the only reason I say it, it's it's not a big deal. But for example, the utilitarian, if you had to choose between saving your daughter or saving another um, stranger, um, the utilitarian could come up with some some story about how it's worse if you don't save your child because of the pain that it brings to you in addition to the death of that. Right. But, 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 no, but notice something. I mean, that's, that's, um, it's true that the utilitarian may not always decide that the right thing to do is, is to not help my daughter. Right. Notice yeah. I said all other things being equal. Right. Um, but the, but the point just is, is that what you're required to do is what the utilitarian calculus decides is the right yes, thing to do, yes, right? Yes. Um, and it seems to me a lot of the times when the sorts of objections that I would raise against the utilitarian are, are raised, um, hey, it's ridiculous to say that I have a bigger duty to five strangers in, 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 on the other side of the planet than I have to my own daughter. Um, the utilitarian if they're unwilling to sort of bite the bullet and, and grip that, that absurdity, um, they oftentimes try to sort of come up with some way of, of construing um, the helping your daughter as what utility really demands anyway, right? And I always find that, I don't want to call it sort of special pleading, but I always find that to be rather unconvincing, uh, at least ad hoc. Um, the, the point is, is look, if you have a moral theory that tells you that there is one supreme good, as both Kant and Mill and, and as both the Kant and the utilitarian tell us, the utilitarian tells us that there's one supreme good, one thing that's supremely valuable, right? And that's happiness. The Kantian tells us that there's one thing that's supremely valuable, and that's the autonomous individual 
rational agent. If you have a theory that says that one thing is supremely good, then you're never going to be able to justify any other value or consideration overriding it. That's why, sure, plenty of utilitarians and Kynians are going to say, oh, well, no, I don't mean that, I don't mean that, I don't mean that. But my reply always is, well, you have to think that if you're actually a Kantian or a utilitarian. Now, if you're telling me you're not one, or that you're some hybrid or adulterated version of something, then you're not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who actually mean it. Mm -hmm. People who actually mean it when they say they're utilitarians. People actually mean it when they say that they're deontologists. Not people who don't mean it, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so um, I guess what I'm saying is I don't see how the utilitarian or the Kantian avoids moral perfectionism. And I don't see how they avoid the idea that moral duty is always overriding, right? I mean, that, that to me seems to me to be straightforwardly entailed um, by their by their outlooks. So that's 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 how I that, that's where I see rationalism, how I see rationalism playing out in 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 the ethical sphere. Um, and also, do, do, also you want, do you want to say something about that before I go into the political? Yeah, really yeah. quick. Yeah, um, go ahead. You know, one one thing that's always um, almost bothered me a little bit about decision theory in philosophy. I'm not sure if you've read um, you know philosophy of decision making. Um, did I just freeze? Did you did no, you hear what I was saying? Everything's fine. Cool. Um, You're talking about like von Neumann and 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 uh, 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 prisoners' dilemma sort of scenarios and these kind of things. So I'm talking about I'm talking about things like um, yeah yeah let's we can we can we can say with things like prisoner dilemma type things. But there's also I mean the thing I was reading about more recently was um, what's called moral uncertainty, the field of moral uncertainty. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? <laughs> and um, one thing that one thing I've noticed is um. Essentially, there's a in decision theory, a big problem comes up with um, whether or not how, how to make or whether or not certain values are commensurable. Um, so, you know, and th this I feel like comes in a little bit here. So commensurable meaning, you know, meaning you can put them on the same scale so that you can actually decide which one um, should motivate you more than another. Right. Um, and this comes in here in this discussion, because, you know, one thing you're talking about is how moral considerations override or moral reasons override, moral values override, non-moral values. That's right. And what this, the notion of overriding here assumes, I think, that these kinds of values are commensurable, that you can measure them, right? That the moral reasons are always more, more valuable or more important um, than, um, you know, the aesthetic values or some, right. other, some other kinds of values. And so there's, there's actually a commensurability assumption being brought into, um, uh, the notion of overriding. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, I, I, you know, I haven't thought about commensurability of, of values too much, but I at least am not completely certain all the time that, that these values are commensurable. I, uh, I, I, I agree with you entirely. Um, there's a really good essay um, 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 by Thomas Nagel um, called, I think it's called, on the plurality of values or something like that. I'll, I'll look it up and I'll put it in the, in the links. Yeah. Um, W.D. Ross also thinks that there's a multiplicity of intrinsic values. Um, um, and W.D. Ross is an example of a non-Kantian deontologist. Um, a one, and he's one with whom I actually have quite a bit of sympathy. Um, um, 
I agree. I think I think that the kind of ra- the rationalism that I'm describing does in, does in ethics entail a kind of monochromatic conception of the supreme good. In other words, there is one supreme value. It's clear. It's unambiguous. Um, and thus, for the Kantian and for the utilitarian, there really shouldn't be any real moral dilemmas, right? Um, um, that is, yeah. with, within the sphere of morality, there should be no moral dilemmas. And certainly, there should be no even question, right, of whether a moral value should have to compete with a non-moral value. But I agree with you that even within the realm of moral value, the rationalist has a problem. Because it seems, at least in a lot of cases, that there are there are uh, more than one uh, things that are intrinsically valuable, uh, which are which not not both of which can be served by an action, right? Um, um, and uh, and it's a credit to people like Ross, and this is the sense in which I think someone like Ross is not a is not a rationalist. So he says when when those sorts of clashes come up, really all that one all you can do is muddle through. That ultimately the, the decision, the judgment that gets made, is considered, but it can't be deemed rational in the way that the rationalist wants, right? Um, and yeah. so I, I agree with you that there is that there is even a problem simply within the sphere of moral obligation of whether what's overriding is is clear, right? Um, um, but in the essay, and, and, and what I'm talking about, really what I'm talking about is the question of whether moral values should have to compete with um, other non-moral values, like, for example, as you mentioned, aesthetic values, or much more commonly, prudential ones, right? And so this is something that I'll get to when we talk about the criticisms of rationalism. But, um, um, but I agree with you that there is even a problem within the sphere of purely moral obligation, whether or not um, these, uh, whether or not there is just one supreme value, and if not, if there's a multiplicity of intrinsic values, whether they're all commensurable with each other, or whether they conflict and clash and you know diverge and and yeah. all that sort of thing. So, yeah. okay, you, you may continue to. Uh, to all right, so, so political philosophy. This this will be relatively quick. Um, so in political philosophy. The rationalism that I'm talking about is manifested in the dominant, and in this sense, it's overwhelmingly dominant, uh, political theoretical paradigm in mainline philosophy, and that is the social contract tradition. Okay, um, And I'm, I'm going to talk about it as most, as most clearly and characteristically manifested in, in mainline philosophy in John Locke and in... Uh, and in John Rawls. Okay. So John Locke, we're talking about the second treatise of government and John Rawls, we're talking about a theory of justice. And in both cases, the, the answer to the question, what should be our political arrangement, right? What sort of political system should we have, right? Is answered by appeal to what a rational a rationally disinterested person would, I'm sorry, a rationally interested person would choose. Okay. Um, where that person is characterized in complete abstraction from any of the specifics of his or her circ- actual circumstances. So for Locke, we're supposed to imagine someone in a hypothetical state of nature, which is um, very, it's very important to make clear 
is not some historical time. When yeah. Locke talks about the state of nature, he's not talking about when we all lived in trees, right? right. Um, 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 and, threw, and threw rocks at each other. Um, he's talking about a hypothetical state of affairs in which we imagine there is no civil society or state, yeah. in which there is no public authority, right? In other words, it's a thought experiment. <laughs> right, it's a thought experiment, right? And the idea is that within that abstract framework, we can clearly identify what a hypothetical person would rationally choose, right? And the idea is that given that we are both by nature rational and self-interested, what we would choose is some measure of, uh, of cooperative shared governance, okay? Yeah. Um, Rawls does something very similar. I mean, there are important differences, but there's something very similar. Rawls, what Rawls says is the way that we determine what the right political arrangements are is by asking what a person in a so-called original position would choose. Where the original position is one in which one is ignorant of what one's actual situation, <coughs> what one's actual situation in the society will be. So you don't know whether you're going to be poor or whether you're going to be rich. You don't know whether you're going to be well-positioned or poorly positioned. Um, and the question then is, what would a person rationally choose in such a situation? And Rawls says clearly what a person would choose rationally in such a situation is some sort of moderate welfareism. Yeah. Um, because one doesn't know whether one's going to wind up on top or on the bottom. And so, so one is so going to... They'll take an impartial stance. That's right. For self-interested reasons. That's right. And you see the similarities between the two ways of going about it, between the Lockean way and the Rawlsian way. Um, and what's important to notice is that in both cases, the sole legitimate basis upon which to decide what sort of politics we should have is on the basis of what a completely abstractly conceived rational agent would choose. Yeah. And that to me is just, that is the quintessential example of rationalism. Um, it is indeed what gave us the liberal democracies that we have in the West to a large extent. Um, this sort of consider, these sorts of theoretical considerations. Um, John Locke's Secretaries of Government is the single most influential document on the American founding. Yeah. Um, um, and, um, and Rawls is by far the most influential contemporary political philosopher. Um, it's worth noting that this is not the only way that one can arrive at the conclusion that a liberal democratic polity is best. <coughs> Edmund Burke, who is uh, widely known, uh, known as being the, the, sort of the grandfather of conservative uh, political philosophy, himself... Uh, was essentially a liberal Democrat. I mean, he's, he was in favor of the American Revolution. He supported the American Revolution. But the way that Burke arrives at the conclusion that liberal democracy is the best uh, form of government is not through um, the considerations of what an abstractly conceived rational person would choose, but rather in terms of the historical arc of, of, of the West. Um, that is, he grounds it in what he views as various inheritances that go all the way back to Magna Carta, uh, as opposed to something that's determined on the basis of abstract rationalistic considerations. Right? Mm -hmm. um, um, so anyway, that's how that's how rationalism is manifested in the political 
uh, in the political sphere. Right. So um, what's interesting is in the political philosophy case of the Rawls, the Rawls and Locke and um, you know state of nature. Um, uh, the conclusion that they get to from deploying essentially what they want is fairness, right? Um, at least, uh, at least Locke, or I'm sorry, at least Rawls. Um, so the whole purpose behind the veil of ignorance right. is so that you'll be impartial, so that you'll come up with basically pretty fair laws. Right, because if you don't know what your position is going to be yeah. in the abstract, you're going to choose whatever it is that maximizes your chance of doing all right, right? Yeah. Once, once, the, once the sort of the thing is in place. <clears throat> I, would right. say, I would say that Locke is less concerned with fairness in that regard, but not because he approaches the, the question from a non-rationalistic perspective, but more because his construal of the abstractly characterized rational person is a, is a somewhat different construal. Um, <clears throat> well, I was gonna, what I was going to ask, though, is um, so at least, uh, you know, one, one thing that isn't frequently objected to Rawls, I think, is um, something like, well, probably is, knowing philosophy, but um, <clears throat> most people like the conclusion, at least. Um, they like the idea that you get impartiality in politics, in law, right, in right, policy. Right, right. And so... I guess my question to you would be, do you think that this is a place where um, impartiality um, and fairness should be sought after, um, specifically in policy? Because I know, by the way, because by the way, you know, you have said you're not eschewing completely this idea of being fair in certain situations. Right. And so I'm wondering if maybe like essentially I'm wondering if political philosophy is actually a place where rationalism could have could get some purchase for you, essentially. Yeah. Just like Rationalism gets purchased in scientific inquiry. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I mean, <clears throat> so let me say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, um, the main criticism of Rawls that you get from people like Sandel and other communitarians is 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 is, is very highly theoretical in the sense that what they basically object to, what they basically say is that there that you can't ascribe beliefs. Or, 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 or attitudes or positions to a completely abstractly conceived person, right? In other words, they, they, they reject that. Yeah. In a sense, they reject the thought experiments as even really being possible, right? Yeah. Um, or is telling us anything informative. Right. I suspect, though, you know, someone like Michael Sandel, who's one of the main communitarian critics of Rawls, I suspect agrees largely with the sort of welfareism, the sort of the public welfareism, that yeah. redistributionism that Rawls... Uh, 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 that Rawls um, comes to, and most people would. That's why it was so attractive when it and so. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing that about it that's sort of seductive. One wonders, did he simply start with what he already wanted to conclude, and then sort of find a way to get there, or is this really where where your inquiries lead you? I mean, that that's a whole separate, a whole separate, um, um, a whole separate uh, 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 criticism. There's a very, very good. I think probably the best criticism of Rawls I've ever read is actually a review that, that the philosopher Alan Bloom wrote uh, when Theory of Justice first came out. And if I can find it, I'll, uh, I'll link to it. Um, but he accuses Rawl of, Rawls of this. Um, um, <clears throat> says that Rawls starts out assuming a basic redistributionist liberalism and then goes sets about finding it, right? Um, <clears throat> um, 
Now, in terms of what you've asked me, uh, however, um, yes, for example, so, so something like uh, impartiality, I take to be an absolute virtue, for example, uh, in the law, right? Um, um, because of what we, what we seek the law to do, what we, what we have law for. Um, my problem is with when it gets misapplied, when it gets applied, and in my view, misapplied in other areas. So <clears throat> what's a virtue in a courtroom might not be a virtue in deciding how I'm going to act with regard to my, my daughter's uh, uh, application to, a univers to universities, or my daughter's competing for a, um, for a, uh, uh, a spot in the school play. Right? I'm going to do all sorts of things to advantage her in those competitions that would be completely inappropriate and, and, and bad if it was done in a, in a courtroom, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, and, and so, you know, and so, yes, of course, I think that in the sphere of law, in much of the sphere of, of politics, um, impartiality and fairness is a virtue, um, I don't think that that's generalizable across action generally, across all our actions. And I would also say that I, I and, th and this maybe is something, a critique we probably won't go into just because it's, it's it takes us, it's going to take too much and, and it's probably the one that with people sure. will be least familiar. But I agree with Burke that it's better to arrive at the liberal democratic idea in the way that he does, as opposed to the way the rationalist does, because one of the best, and, and this this is this is manifested not just in Burke's uh, masterpiece, which is his book um, uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France, because interestingly Burke was a supporter of the American Revolution but an opponent of the French Revolution, um, and part of it was precisely because he thought the Fr the French Revolution was entirely theory driven in a way that the American Revolution was not. Um, <clears throat> And it's also manifested in a very important paper written after the Second World War by Michael Oakeshott called Rationalism in Politics, which I will link to. The problem is that, as you know, one can rationally justify a lot of stuff. You know, on the one hand, rational warrant is a very, very strict master. But on the other hand, you can really, you can rationally deduce crazy shit. Stuff that you only recognize as crazy when you take the, reason, the reasoning hat off for a minute and allow your sort of common sense and your instincts and your intuitions to work. Um, some of the most crazy ideas are the results of theories. Um, and um, some of the worst ideologies are the results of theories. And so both Oakeshott and, and uh, Burke argue that a kind of acceptance of a cumulative organic tradition tempered by a moderate amount of reason is the ideal way, is the best way to sort of go about determining political arrangements, which after all, aren't only concerned with what's just in an abstract sense, but with a certain kind of social continuity and stability, right? Yeah. In which I would argue non-rational concerns come into play. Um, and so... Yes, I do accept the idea, this, the long-winded uh, road back to what you originally asked me. I, of course, accept the idea that, that ideals, like, that virtues like um, consistency and fairness and impartiality are absolutely essential 
in in the in the law and in certain dimensions of politics, you know, one man, one vote, that kind of thing. Um, but a, I don't think that that can be generalized. I don't think that cons consistency and fairness and impartiality are generalizable virtues. And I also um, don't think that the best way at arriving at political systems is through a purely rational slash theoretical investigation. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so should we not talk about some of the criticisms? I mean, um, or did you want to, did you want to first, I mean, we're at an hour. I figured yeah. we can go an hour and a half without abusing people. Um, uh, Glenn Lowry had a recent one with kind of Friedersdorf, Friedersdorf where he went like almost two hours. So I feel like I've been uh, uh, freed up to not lock the clock so tightly. Um, but did you want to make a few observations or did you have some thoughts before we went on to discuss what I take the main criticisms of this sort of rationalism to be? Um, I think I think we should go on to the criticisms because most of what I'll, I w might want to say now would probably be better said after you go through the criticisms. So your disagreements probably arise a lot with respect to some of the criticisms that I've... Yeah, yeah I think so. I think so. At yeah. least that's what it seems like in the, in the conversations we've had is that... Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so... Um, the first one, so, so let's, let's go in the same order, right? So we first talked about epistemic rationalism, small r, epistemic rationalism, uh, and what's wrong with it. Uh, and, what's, and here I suspect we probably will have the least disagreement. I suspect that the most is going to be with respect to the moral, moral rationalism, and I think we'll probably just not talk about the political rationalism at all um, for sake of time. I'm sure it'll come up in the discussion thread, and I'll be able to fill in if people want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so my 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 criticism of the epistemic rationalism that you find in mainline philosophy is essentially a combination of the criticisms of Hume and of the later Wittgenstein, and specifically, I'm thinking of the Wittgenstein of uh, uncertainty, which is his major work in epistemology. There are there's stuff in there. There are epistemological ideas and and criticisms and, and and notions running through the investigations, running through all of his later philosophy. But uncertainty is the book he wrote about it. He didn't actually write a book. He these are notes that were that were collected and uh, put together uh, after he died. Um, and let me try and give a, a very a, a very tight and relatively brief account of what this objection is, and that is. Um, it is not just the case that one can't give a rational ground for every belief, but to think that one can is actually to misunderstand what the giving of reasons involves. Okay. In other words, <clears throat> the very practice of giving or the very the notion of giving an a reason for a belief is one that presupposes a number of things that if you understand what they are, you would see right away that it's impossible for all human belief to have rational ground. So let me um, let, let me let me let me let me talk about that for a second. So, at the most bare bones abstract level, <clears throat> you already raised this yourself with respect to the infinitist. Okay, um, if you ask me for a rational reason for some belief, let's call the belief uh, uh, P. Yeah, so why do you believe P? And I give you some rational reason. I give you a reason. Let's call it R. So the reason for the reason to believe the justification for P is R. 
are, of course, is simply some other belief. And now the question is, well, what's your rational reason for believing R? Right. And the answer is going to be, well, some further belief, Q. In other words, the idea that we'd be able to give a reason for all of our reasons on the surface immediately is problematic because you can see that this entails a kind of infinite regress. Now, this is precisely what the foundationalist and the um, and the um, the coherentists try to alleviate. They try to remove yeah. this problem. Yeah, um, it's worth noting that both foundationalism and coherentism have some significant substantial problems. That is, the foundationalist especially has significant problems. The coherentist has other problems. I'm not going to go into what all of them are. That takes take us too far off. But it's hardly the case that, that, that people are satisfied that we have found some ultimate rational ground for all these rational grounds that we give. So that's the first thing to sort of to note, that the very notion of giving reasons presupposes um, that um, we should be able to give reasons all the way down. And it seems that that's not clear that that's the case. Um, there's also the further observation that many of the reasons we give only count as reasons if we take other things as take, if we already take other things as being given or taken for granted. And so I'm trying to think of an example. So Crispin Wright uh, has this has this uh, has several papers in, really, in which he introduces. Uh, uh, a construction that he calls the one, two, three argument. Um, and essentially what he's trying to show is that the rationalist, the rationalist attempt to overcome various skeptical uh, doubts. And of course, what the skeptic is doing is saying that you can't give rational reasons for everything that we believe. Um, what Wright wants to show is that a certain kind of understanding of rational grounds can't be can't be correct this notion that rational grounds go all the way down and that you don't ever need to assume every anything as given right without grounds and so let's take an example so let's say you um observe uh you watch somebody kick a ball to through two goal posts right and you could and you and you construct the following uh uh uh, you, and, you, and you have the belief as a result that a soccer match is taking place. And so the belief is a soccer match is taking place. And so what's the rational ground? Well, the rational ground is I saw this guy kicking two ball, a ball through two posts. Um, uh, he has just, therefore just scored a goal. And on the basis of this, I have rational grounds for believing that a soccer game has taken place. And what Wright wants to say is that the reasons that I've given for the belief only count as reasons if I already have independent reason to think that a soccer game is taking place. Because, of course, a ball going through two posts only counts as evidence of a goal if one is playing soccer. Mm -hmm. Right now, suppose that you know one is in a strange, uh, a strange culture in which um, this is how marriage ceremonies are performed. Mm -hmm. Then kicking a ball through two posts would not constitute a rational reason for thinking a soccer game is taking place. It would constitute a reason for thinking a wedding is taking place. Mm -hmm. And 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 Wright's point is that 
Um, a lot of times the rational grounds that we give themselves presuppose that we already know a bunch of things. Presuppose that a bunch of things are already held in place. And, and this, this takes me over to Wittgenstein and uncertainty. What Wittgenstein says is, you can't even... I'm so, sorry? So in, the yeah, soccer, so in the soccer case, what's being presupposed is that um, um, we're in you know, the culture such that shooting a ball through two posts is indicative of a soccer game taking place. Stuff like that, right? Like global background information right. that would make your... Right. Um, justifications um, kind of warranted. Right, um, right. But the point, the, of, yeah. the point so being, use a kind of abductive inference to the best explanation in the first place. Yeah, but but the, the relevant point here is simply that the rationalist picture that you know I have a belief and then I give a reason and the reason is a rational ground for on which basis of which one can somehow infer the belief in question. What what this shows is that this sort of that sort of misunderstands how reasoning works. Something only counts as a reason for something else against the background of a bunch of information that itself is simply taken as given, right? This is this is this is a this is a bit like Duhem's thesis in philosophy of science. Yes, and in this case, exactly, and in this case, what Wright is showing is that in this case, what has to be presumed is precisely the thing it is that you're trying to rationally justify, right? You're supposed to be rationally justifying your belief that a soccer game is taking place. But the things that you're citing as the rational grounds, the evidence you're citing, only counts as evidence. Only counts as evidence if one already has independent grounds for thinking a soccer game is taking place. Otherwise, balls going through posts is not evidence of soccer being played. Right? It's only evidence of soccer being played if you have independent reason to think that soccer is being played. Now, I mean, it's a silly, it's a superficial example. It's just designed to give you a sense of the structure. This is the, the conclusion that, this is what Wittgenstein draws from this. He says, the very practice of giving reasons or the very possibility of making certain kinds of mistakes only arise if one already is within a rich framework of already established things. He gives this analogy. He says, in order for the door to move, the hinges have to stay put. If the hinges are moving also, the door can't be moving. What it means to move is to move relative to a fixed point. So if you ask me, well, why should I think there's a fixed point? The answer, there is no answer. The only answer you can give is, well, that's the only way in which saying things move is intelligible as if some things are, have, are fixed, right? Um, he gives the question, you know, you, this, this arises, Wittgenstein works in very aphoristic ways, and so he doesn't really construct arguments. He gives these sort of, asks these questions that are sort of pregnant with the ideas he's trying to propose. He says, look, um, is it the same thing to ask? So, so I can ask someone, um, is there a planet outside the orbit of Pluto? Right. That's a perfectly legitimate question, and we know how we'd go about answering it, right? Um, here's a superficially similar looking question. Um, are there any planets at all? Or why should I think there are any planets? Now, superficially, this looks like the same kind of question. And it looks like a question for which you'd give a rational, you know, same kind of answer. <clears throat> but of course, that's a very different kind of question. That indeed is a skeptical question. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't answer it in the same way. And notice something. You couldn't ask the first kind of question unless you presume the answer to the second kind of question. In other words, it wouldn't be intelligible to ask 
whether there's a planet outside of the orbit of Jupiter, unless one presumed that there were such things as planets, right? Yeah. Um, and so we can only ask certain questions if a, if, if a number of other things are held fast. Now, this might look superficially like a kind of foundationalism, right? The things that hold fast are the basic beliefs. The problem is that, first of all, they have no internal justification like the, like the foundationalist wants them to have. They're not in, incorrigible. They're not indubitable. They're not, they're not infallible. That's number one. And number two, which things hold fast, which beliefs hold fast is going to depend upon the inquiry. Right. So uh, let me give you another example. Um, one of the things that has to hold fast if one is engaged in any scientific investigation are the rules of logic. Mm -hmm. Right. Scientists are constantly making modus ponens inferences, which means they have to presume that modus ponens is a valid form of inference. So when you're engaged in scientific inquiry, modus ponens holds fast. Right. But if I'm engaged in metalogical inquiry, if I'm doing logical meta theory, right. then part of what my job is is to show that modus ponens is true. Mm -hmm. Now, in that inquiry, modus ponens doesn't hold fast. But notice, something else does. Mm -hmm. The tools and mechanics of, of metalogic hold fast, right? And so the reason why the position that I'm describing is an anti-rationalist and not a foundationalist position is because, A... All reasoning ultimately depends upon a whole number of things being held without reason. Those things cannot be construed as rational in the way the foundationalist wants to be because they're really held without reason. They have no internal necessity. Right? And what that set of things consists on shifts and changes and varies depending upon the inquiry. Right? And so for Wittgenstein... And this is also somewhat true of Ryle. I mean, you can read this, you can see this in Ryle's you know, essay on knowing how versus knowing that. Right? This is another way of sort of saying a similar thing. And that is, um, the rationalist thinks that all believing should have a rational ground. Right? That all, more general than that, all practices should have a rational ground. And what Ryle's point is that Giving rational grounds is itself a kind of practice that can be done well or poorly. And so it can't be that all practices have rational grounds. In a sense, practices come first, and reasoning is just one kind of practice. And that's, I think, the lesson sort of that I take from Wittgenstein and from people like Ryle, that reasoning is just one of many kinds of practices we engage in. And the rationalist attempt to sort of view it as sort of like the meta overarching overriding practice that in a sense is in some way internally self-justified or demonstrably internally, internally rational is simply unsustainable. Right? That's, that, so, that, that's, that's the sort of the okay, criticism so of... Telling, okay, so let's, let's note that one thing you said earlier is that you're happy for rationalism to be kind of the predominant methodological view for certain fields of inquiry. And the paradigm example you would give is scientific inquiry. Right. What this means is that um, essentially you don't, you don't want your um, anti-rationalist picture 
to be globally anti-rationalist. Well, you just want it to be anti-global rationalism. <laughs> with a caveat, with a caveat, and that is, and I don't know whether this will whether this will affect your agreement or disagreement, but I agree with Hume and Wittgenstein and Ryle that at bottom, all of our practices are not rationally based. Okay. See, that's right. what I was about to, so this is, I was about to get Now, to, now, given yeah. that, internal to certain practices, reason is the governing modality and ought to be the governing modality. So within the framework of scientific discourse and inquiry, reason is the overriding overriding modality and criterion within jurisprudence certain kinds of certain brands of rationality and by the way it's interesting to note that what, what, what rational means in jurisprudence is very different from what it means in logic right um within jurisprudence a certain kind of rationalism that is a certain taking a certain kind of rational of reason um as being overriding is absolutely the case but i agree with hume and wittgenstein at the meta level that ultimately human practice in general cannot be described as rational, cannot be properly described as rational. Um, you know, Wittgenstein um, goes so far as to say that at the end of the day, once you pursue the reasons all the way down, and now you're at the point at which you're sort of seeing the whole, what, you know, the things you're taking as givens and the thing, that ultimately we act blindly. If you're looking for ultimate, ultimate at the end of the day, we simply act. Act, action comes first, and all the reasoning is simply one brand of it. Right. Okay. Then, but then, so then the the question becomes: so so it, it felt as though one thing were so we mentioned three areas of philosophy where rationalism seems present, and the three areas are epistemology. Oh, the mainline philosophy, yes, yeah. Epistemology, ethics, and political philosophy. Right. Now. One, the question we wanted to, to ask, I, I take it one of, the, one of the very important questions we can still ask is, is rationalism appropriately applied? Despite this um, criticism you've made about how we just act ultimately or, you know, we, we, we ultimately are kind of blindly acting. Um, you yourself have said rationalism makes sense within specific fields of inquiry. Right. Maybe maybe we should be careful not to use the word rationalism too much. So what I, what, let me qualify that. What I said is that the notion that reason should be overriding is appropriate within certain practices. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so. I don't think ethics is one of them necessarily. I was going to say, we're still <laughs> left with the question, right, of despite, despite this kind of large scale criticism that you've just launched by objecting to epistemology, um, uh, rationalism about epistemology, right. um, we're still left with. The discussion about absolutely, is, you know, is overriding reason still appropriately applied to the, such and such and such fields? Absolutely. So it's an open question, right? So now that I've sort of sort of gave the, the epistemic rationalism is the most general, it's yeah. the broadest, it's the widest in its scope. It really does encompass the entire rationalist picture of human beings, which remember is applied both to belief and to action, right? Yeah. Um, it now still remains a question. Is reason plausibly overriding within certain areas of within the area of action, let's say, whether the individual action, ethics, or collective sort of social action, which is a political theory, politics? And um, my answer is going to be, again, in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. 
Um, certainly in the case of individual action, I don't think that that uh, reason should always be overriding. Uh, and that is, I don't believe that moral considerations are always overriding. Um, um, and in the case of politics, I also don't believe that um, uh, moral consideration, uh, that, 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 that rational considerations should always be overriding. Uh, and so, uh, uh, no, I don't uh, uh, in, in either of those areas. I think the rationalist is wrong uh, in both of those areas. Uh, and I, I mean, I could talk about why, but that's, that's the structure of, of, of my position. Yeah, and so by reason, by reason being overriding in ethics, you're talking about duty being uh, moral duty being overriding. That's right. Uh, to all other um, kinds of non-moral values. Right. So, 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 so when we look at the rationalist picture, the rationalist picture in general, right? Then these virtues that follow from it, um, the picture that, that that emerges is one in which for the rationalist. Because duty and the right and the good um, are the ultimate reasons for all our action, right? serving the right and the good, um, considerations of the right and the good are always overriding of all other considerations in action. Right? And so that includes, uh, that includes things like matters of prudence, that includes things like uh, 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 matters of personal relationship uh, and the like. Yes. And what I'm saying is I don't think that's true. Yeah. So how about you go into why you don't think that's true? And then we can discuss some of the uh, concerns. Right. So so I think the sort of the simplest, one of the simplest uh, ways into this to, is to sort of point out, um, while I think that there are certainly um, honest in the sense of being truthful, um, uh rational ethicists, eth rational ethicists, uh, I don't think anybody actually is one, <laughs> right? Um, because the, 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 the giant sort of elephant in the room is that everyone, including the Peter Singers of the world, who took perhaps the best example of, a, of an ethical rationalist, everyone, every day, allows scores and scores of prudential values to override moral ones, right? So um, someone decides to drive somewhere instead of take the bus. Someone decides to shop at Walmart instead of driving an hour and a half to a local mom and pop store, which by the way, in the Midwest, many people are in this position. Um, someone decides to, like in my position, decides to copy and paste comments into, into student papers rather than write every single comment from scratch, right? In each of these cases, I would argue one can identify a moral duty that one is allowing a prudential consideration to override. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, um, and what I would argue is that stuff like that, every single one of us does every single day. Mm -hmm. So I just think that as a sheer matter of, of plain fact, no one actually is an ethical rationalist, right? I do. Um, no one's an ideal rationalist. Yeah. No one, no one actually acts out. No one actually lives out a rational. No one is the ideal. Right. Right. No one is the right. ideal. But obviously, the um, you know, the rationalist doesn't have a problem with with that. Um, with right. The fact that no one's an ideal. Right. Although, you have further, you have further criticisms here. Although, right? yeah. Well, let me let me. You know, I, I'm I'm not quite as happy to let that go. I mean, I mean, 
I had a, I had actually a back and forth with Massimo on this, and he tried to sort of throw this at me. Uh, well, you know, I'm imperfect, right? Um, that answer works once. It doesn't work twice, three times, four times, five times, 16 times, 30 times. Um, in other words, I find it plausible to say, okay, this is the ideal. And yes, I went to Walmart this morning, but you know, I'm a fallible being. I'm weak, right? I made a mistake. It's wrong. I made a mistake. Okay, now that you've made the mistake, you've recognized and acknowledged that you've made the mistake, presumably you're not going to make it again, right? The fact that you then go do exactly the same thing next week, and then the week after, and then the week after that, you can't keep pulling out your imperfection as the, as the explanation for this. I mean, that just starts to look really disingenuous after a while, and it almost looks like you're trying to avoid the obvious conclusion, and that is that the moral reason is not always overriding, that there are other competing values, like convenience, like cost, like any number. In other words, maybe a way to put, to put your, your objection here is something like, look, we can use, I mean, almost a cliche, like we can use actions to infer what someone actually believes. Right. And if your actions basically over time unfold such that it really looks like what you believe is that moral reasons aren't overriding. Right. Come on, just right. fess up to right. it. Right. That, I, I, and look, and look, I am not, you know, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble with Massimo. I am not accusing him of being explicitly disingenuous. I don't think he is. He's the last person I would say is being explicitly or consciously disingenuous. I think this is almost a, stru this is almost a structural kind of habit that we've fallen into that is that we're simply, you know, that, that, that we, we, so, we so are in the grip of a cherished idea that we'll do anything to avoid um, um, contradicting it. And I really do think that this notion that moral duty is always overriding is a very cherished idea by an awful lot of people, especially in mainline philosophy. And when you point out to them, you never act like this. Their in instinctive reaction is to say, oh, you know, is, is to find some way to explain that away without having to look hard at the cherished idea and say, is this really, is this really, I mean, <laughs> what I really think or, or, or not? Um, and so I think that the mere fact that every single person on a daily basis allows scores of prudential considerations and therefore prudential values to override moral obligations is a real reason for thinking that moral obligation is not always overriding. Yes, you can give these sort of answers in terms of person's imperfection or fallibility, but those answers ring very, very empty after a few times around. Then you start asking, well, wait a minute, you already acknowledged that this was wrong. You acknowledge you did it in a moment of weakness. How come you're weak so often? I mean, it almost sounds to me like you're starting to sound like someone who believes in original sin or something. Right. I mean, that, that's what it starts. I was actually about to say that, um, you know, I'm pretty sure, you know, um, certain religious religious um, people would find no issue or, or would completely think that your objection is right. But notice the framework. But notice the framework. Right. In a Christian in a Christian framework, I think that 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 you can maintain the idea that, that moral duties are overriding and you can give the fallibility answer because there's a rich background against which that makes sense the idea of a fallen world and a fallen people right but to the, be rational, fair, the rationalist has no access to that kind of well, a framework fair, the rationalist has access to um 
they can have access to a certain understanding of human nature, which is less than ideal, which, I would, yeah. entail, which would entail a kind of consistent imperfection, yeah, but, but would still strive for an ideal. But it would not, I, I don't think it would explain or would make sense of an ongoing imperfection with zero moral improvement. In other words, this guy's going to keep driving that car until he's 90 years old. Right? This guy's going to keep shopping at Walmart until he's 80 years old, right? I mean, in other words, I don't believe, in other words, you just, it strikes me as highly suspicious that you just don't see any improvement with respect to these. Normally, when somebody recognizes a weakness that caused them to, 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 to stumble on a duty, they work at it. And you find that it's not repeated, or if it's repeated, it's only repeated a few times. But these prudential considerations override all the time, and they always will. They're never – and so I just don't see the kind of arc. Let's also be clear here, though, that like – so there's a difference between talking about um, people who don't really consider things like rationalism at all and just live their lives, and then talking about people like Massimo – Right. Um, or any other philosopher. Right. Because I was going to say, someone like Massimo, definitely, I'm sure he could definitely point out to you all sorts of ways in which he's made improvements. Yes, he has. I mean, you know, um, he and I are going to do a dialogue in a few right. weeks on ethical veganism, yeah. um, which is and where this whole argument came up. Say, he would say that he made an improvement there, right? Yeah. So he recognized that that's a perfect example, actually, for him, right? This was a big thing that he, he came to believe is morally yeah. wrong. He's a more. Yeah. more yeah. And it took it actually took work for him yeah. to stop eating it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look, and look, I'm. God forbid that I should try and give the implication that I that, that the view I'm presenting and the arguments I'm presenting are somehow knocked down completely. Uh, right, un- right. You know, this is this is the way I see this stuff, yeah, and yeah. I think I have a pretty good, you know, and, and my own orientation is largely in, in in contrast with it. And so, you know, yes, of course, I, I'm not denying that there can't be responses to this. Certainly, and certainly you're pointing at them, and I could see a position maybe that someone could put together in which even the persistent fallibility is explained in a way that doesn't seem to to be explaining away. Um, but needless to say, this is one of the things that sort of, sort of the overwhelming acceptance of prudential values is overriding across the span of our lives strikes me as one reason for thinking that moral values are not overriding. Right. Okay. And um, by the way, I'm also not saying that I don't see the tug of your argument yeah. at all. I just want to, I want to try, because I've been thinking about this a lot since we've been talking about it, and I'm trying to figure out where my own intuitions lie on this. And in order to get clear, I want to kind of parse out the yeah. different ways the rationalist theory would play out in someone like Massimo. And by the way, it's funny, it sounds like we're talking, we're talking about Massimo, like behind his back here. It's man. only because it's only because he and I just had an exchange about this on his blog, and that he and I are going to have a conversation about this in two weeks. And so, um, don't worry, we're not talking behind his we back. Should, we should have a shout out, like Massimo. We like right, you, right, right. So cool. Um, so l- let me give you some of the other considerations. Can, yeah. I, can I say one other thing? Yes, please go so, ahead. Um, so one other thing I've been thinking about recently is, um, you know, if you. I, I, so when I first started learning about moral duty and stuff like that, and perhaps this could come from my kind of religious background from earlier on. Well, you should I, tell people what you're, you used to be an evangelical, oh yeah, um, used I, to be an evangelical Christian. Yeah, I used to be an evangelical Christian. That's right. Um, and, you know, one of the things that um, I – the way that I understood moral duty um, when I first started learning about it um, in college – I think I understood it as like analytically true that 
if something was a moral duty, it was overriding. Yeah. It's actually very hard for me to make sense of what a moral duty is if it does not contain yeah. the notion of overriding. And this isn't just for conceptual reasons. It's almost for practical reasons, too. Right. Because if you don't if you don't think that moral duties um, conceptually contain this notion of like overridingness, then when I tell you, you know, usually are the function of saying you have a moral duty to do X is to say, like, that's overriding yeah. you have to do it. That's yeah. like the pragmatic function of the term. Yeah. And so if you lose this idea of overridingness, it becomes difficult for me to see how you can rescue the term instead of being an eliminatist about it. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Um, a, this is one of the reasons why when I pose this to people, they often are at a loss of how to reply. Yeah. Um, um, like three weeks, by the way. Right. And, and, and Massimo also almost didn't know what to say to me when I asked, when I challenged the notion that moral reasons are overriding and, because it's I, almost like challenging bachelors and unmarried men. Yes, and I and I would I would argue that I, I, not argue I would po- I would I would point out that if you look at some of the other work that I've done um, and work that I've that I've that I'm in the process of doing, um, I'm in the process of asking myself whether I think there is actually any such thing as a moral obligation. Um, 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 if what you mean is what people typically mean by it. Uh, and I find that whenever I try to grab hold on the notion and make some sense of it, it slips out of my, my out of my hands. Um, so you um, probably want to stick to something like there are moral reasons. I actually think that, that really there are valuations and that these valuations entail a whole a whole panoply of, of obligations that have to compete with each other uh, for our for our consideration. Uh, and, and that all have to compete with each other for our obedience. Uh, and that I don't think that there's any systematic way or rationalistic way of sorting them out. I think it's highly contingent, highly context sensitive, highly individual. Um, and I guess I just, I don't see any way around that. Um, um, and some of the things that we've been talking about sort of pointed that like something like the idea of a prudential consideration overriding a moral run, uh, a moral one. I'll give you another one. Uh, um, I think that aesthetic considerations uh, uh, aesthetic and hedonic considerations often override moral ones. Um, I don't know that I'd want to say to an, a, an ethical vegan that I don't think I have any duties to animals. Um, um, but what I would say is that they don't override the other things that I value. Um, and, so I just, uh, just realized a way actually to kind of launch the same kind of objection you did against the rational ethicist um, maybe against um, you or the same strategy, the same strategy. So I just, what I, I guess what I was pointing out was ordinary language, ordinary language, and actually a lot of ordinary practices, um, um, kind of moral practices involve deploying terms like duty um, in a very specific functional way. Um, the way that implies overridingness, right? And this is ubiquitous. Um, people people invoke overridingness of moral duty all the time. That's right. right. So yes, there are these practices that involve um, what looks like people don't believe that moral duties are overriding, which is what you've pointed out. It's like com- continuing to just fuck up, right, right, right. Uh, and over. But then there's also this practice of ordinary language and holding people accountable and kind of ascribing moral duties, which is consistent with the um, the view that duties are overriding. So uh, now, now I'm a little less convinced by this 
method that you've used of looking to how people behave? Because it looks like if you look closely enough, you can find behaviors that are consistent with both views. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess, look, I mean, I guess this is ultimately a judgment call. You know, what, what yeah. you think, what you think follows from people's behavior. I mean, I would just point out is that you know, you can add on top of the prudential values, you can add, like I said, aesthetic and hedonic values. Um, and I said this to Massimo in our exchange. Um, I said, look, I said, uh, you wear nice clothes. You drink good wine. You live in a nice apartment in Chelsea. Um, you've made all sorts of choices that serve any number of hedonic values and aesthetic values, but which uh, a, a hardcore utilitarian would argue are completely unjustifiable and are in defiance of fundamental moral values. Um, I said to him, I said, you could have lived in a much cheaper apartment and given away that money to homeless people, the difference in homeless people. You could wear cheaper clothes. You could quit drinking wine. You could quit. In other words, I guess I just don't, and, and I don't want to push this too far because I think you're right. I think you're right that this is a matter of how we interpret people's behavior and what it entails and all that. But I just find there to be so many examples of prudential and other sorts of aesthetic and hedonic values overriding moral ones on a daily basis, on a massive scale, that it just seems to me that more plausible to conclude that the moral duty is overriding is a kind of self-flattery than it is any kind of reality about us. Um, but again, I agree with you that that's, that that's disputable. Um, yeah. And it's a matter of, of how you of how you see this, and, and I would say not just what you can infer, but what you see and what people do. Um, yeah. But let me give one more reason that's not along these lines. So this is the Susan Wolf stuff, right? So yeah. yeah so get to this. Actually. So so th and this is probably should be the last thing we do since this is at an hour and forty minutes. Oh um, man, this um, is so fun. Dude. I know I can do this with you for four hours, and we have done it for four hours, but the audience don't doesn't want it for four hours. Um, there is a further question as to whether what Wolf calls a moral saint is actually even an appealing character, right? And so one of the things, and again, you might say that, that this wouldn't necessarily be true in certain religious frameworks, but certainly in a normal, ordinary, secular framework, we would associate the ideal with that which we admire, okay? So the, the ideal person is an admirable person, right? And um, Wolf, Susan Wolf, in this paper, that is one of a handful of. I could probably list, you know, a dozen articles across various subjects that have had just an enormous impact on the way that I think about uh, uh, philosophy. And Susan Wolf's paper, Moral Saints, is one of them. And what Susan Wolf actually says is that not only is the moral saint, what we've been calling the moral perfectionist, the moral rationalist, not admirable. It's a the kind, a kind of person we actually really don't like at all. Certainly not somebody we want to hang out with. Certainly somebody we don't want around. Um, 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 and her argument is really very simple. And that is, she says, when one pursues morality in a single-minded way, and the way that the rationalist uh, requires, when one treats moral obligation as always overriding and always strives to act on it, one thereby fails to cultivate all sorts of non-moral virtues, right? So one of the things that she points out is, 
if one really believes that moral duty is overriding and 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 practices it, you'll never have a champ. There'll never be any champion tennis players. There'll never be any master craftsmen. There'll never be any great artists. There'll never be any great novelists. There'll never be any great chefs. There'll never be any great anythings that involve the devotion of an enormous amount of time and energy and consideration mm -hmm. to um, non-moral values, right? So whether, whether to beauty um, or whether to some form of, uh, of entertainment or athleticism or whether, in other words, all these sorts of <coughs> things that we admire and that we like in people and that make people interesting and that make somebody a person you'd actually want to sit and have a conversation with or have a drink with or whatever are precisely all those characteristics that represent the non-moral virtues. Mm -hmm. And I think we've all had the experience of, of being subjected to a, a kind of moralizer who is just the most tedious, awful, worst sort of person to sort of hang around. Um, um, the sort of the person, you know, who's constantly engaged in a kind of moral hectoring. I mean, you see this a lot today with, you know, I guess today it's mostly you see it with sort of social justice warriors. These people tend to be humorless. They tend to sort of, you know, there's, I mean, gosh, I mean, think about you couldn't have great comedy, right? I mean, there's just so many things that we, there's so many activities and traits that not only we admire in people, that but that we cherish in them, um, that are, are would never arise if a person actually tried to yes. live the way that a utilitarian or a Kantian told them to live. And so I think what Wolf does is she sort of raises the question, um, is the moral perfectionist admirable? And if the, it's not admirable, then how can we say it's an ideal? Right now, the reason I said that I could see how you might be able to say this in a religious framework is that in a religious framework, you could say that the ideal is really almost a non-human ideal. Right, but if we don't have that framework available, it's very odd that we would claim that something is an ideal. But if you ask, would you ever want to hang out with such a person? The answer is absolutely not. Right, <laughs> right? and I think Susan Wolf is pretty convincing that there aren't too many of us who'd want to hang out with moral saints. So first, I just want to say I love I loved Season Wolf's um, article. It's, um, it's one of those... It's one Philosophy of those, at its best, in my opinion. Yeah, and also the other thing is it's so... It's, it's tackling such huge monolithic traditions. I mean, she's attacking yeah. both the Kantian Everybody. and utilitarian <laughs> framework right. um, all at once. It's... And, and she does it in a way that I, I love as well. It's a way of just, it's not a way of changing you necessarily by premise, premise, conclusion, argument. It's a way by changing the way that you see the world almost. Yeah. You know what I mean? Total frame reference yeah. shift. She frame can change. Yeah. Yeah. Frame change. Um, so I, I just wanted to say out front, like I, I absolutely loved um, that paper and it definitely has changed a lot of the way that I think about doing philosophy um, in the future as well. So um, but anyway, I, I wanted to draw out a distinction between two different things that I think maybe um, might might be confused together by by viewers. I know they were for myself. Um, so there's a difference. Between, so there are two potential bad states of affairs that could result from being a moral saint on the utilitarian or the Kantian framework. One is the world ends up sucking and the other is the person ends up sucking. 
And these are related, obviously, because the reason the world would end up sucking is because the people would end up sucking. Right. By the way, this is this is to use technical jargon. If yeah, you of course. I just, you're being very sophisticated in your Thanks, analysis. Yeah. <laughs> and so, to be clear, I think Wolf's criticism in her paper was primarily on you're going to become a sucky person. Um, however, I think it lingers in the background, though I don't know if I don't remember at least if she explicitly. Are you there? I'm here. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought you were frozen. You just weren't No, reading. no, no. I'm just not I'm listening raptly. Right at playing dead. I want to hear you say the word suck again. Yeah. <laughs> God. Um, so, um, you know, I think it was lurking in the background of Wolf's paper that, you know, if you have all these shitty, you know, shitty people or sucky people, um, you'll have a sucky world. Yeah. But her, the, the thrust, the way that she put the criticism was from an Aristotelian virtue ethicist perspective of, you know, you won't be, you won't have a good character if um, you shoot for these ideals. And so her thought was any moral theory, which dictates that you go, you strive for um, an ideal that is, that's going to sacrifice, you know, your character, that you're going to be a terrible person, essentially. That's an, uh, that's a point against that moral theory. That's a reason to reject the the moral theory. That's right. So so I guess let me let me first ask you. So you'd want to add on top of that that the world would also suck. <laughs> yes, I think that a world in which there were no there were no great chefs, there were no great athletes, there were no uh, uh, great humorists, and there were no you know because everybody was busying about the business of 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 uh, uh, of advancing the supreme good would be a horrible, a horrible world uh, that I don't think anybody would choose to live in. Um, um, and uh, I, let me just say, because you mentioned it, and I was going to actually sort of end with this, and that much of what I've said, I think, does advance a kind of Aristotelianism, right? Because one of the things that's so lovely about Aristotle's view, and that's not, that, that's sort of lost in these modern views, and really what we're talking about is modern philosophy. We're talking about philosophy since the Enlightenment, is precisely this notion of a balanced temperament and a balanced character and the idea that immoderation in every, of every type is bad, including moral immoderation. Um, Aristotle uh, equally contemn, condemns drunks and teetotalers, right? Um, and I take the teetotaler as a kind of moral perfectionist, right? And so um, I think that not only do I think that, the, that, that this sort of uh, rationalism in ethics is, is wrongheaded, I think that it's also very modern. Prior to the modern era, no one thought this way. I mean, I'm not saying that you, there weren't extreme moral philosophies in the, in, the, in the ancient world, but the big ones, like Aristotle's, um, fully recognized that the human, the human template is complex. There are many ways in which human beings can be excellent. Therefore, there are many distinct, distinct values to be pursued, and that the good, healthy person pursues them in balance and not any one of them to an extreme. And I take the, the mainline tradition because of a modern mainline tradition, because of its rationalism to recommend all sorts of extremes, whether it's in epistemology or whether it's in, whether it's in how we form our beliefs or whether it's in how we act that uh, I think someone like Aristotle would view as, uh, as, as disfiguring and dysfunctional. Uh, and which I agree is disfiguring, which I also think are disfiguring and dysfunctional. Yeah, one thing we had, um, I mean, I, I think 
Yeah, we probably shouldn't touch on the uh, wolf paper anymore just because I know you're going to talk about this with Massimo, I think, in a, in yeah. a dialogue. So we don't want to spoil all of he that. He and I are going to focus on the ethical veganism issue, yes. Yes, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil that content. Um, so I guess one other thing that you and I had talked about, which um, I thought could be worth definitely bringing up and relate to something you just said, is philosophy definitely has, a, I think, a history of these – of of extreme taking extreme positions in response to certain arguments or events in history. Yeah. Um, and you know, the thing that you and I discussed, um, a little while back was, um, in philosophy of mind, sorry, airplane once again, um, in philosophy of mind, um, you know, there was a huge backlash against behaviorism toward very strong nativism. Once Chomsky, um, you know, laid out some of his, his arguments like the poverty of stimulus, and what's also interesting is it's not people analytic philosophy has a certain sociological dimension to it where if you don't endorse the popular view, you sometimes do sustain kind of academic ostracism. Yeah. Um, and it actually can be harmful for your your career. Yeah. And that was very much the case in philosophy of mind. Um, if you flirted with behaviorism for a while, you know, this is something Jesse Prinz noted um, when I interviewed him. If you flirted with behaviorism for a while, um, you were you were in trouble career wise. People immediately assumed you were kind of a fool playing with some dead theories. That's right. That's um, right. Almost like playing with you know maybe some kind of re- religious metaphysic, yeah. metaphysical theories at a secular institution. Um, and so I, I I do think it you know it's possible that the same thing might have happened um, when it comes well, to professionalism. I think I think I think it has. I mean, look look, it's not an accident that this emerges in the Enlightenment which is right, you know, right after the scientific revolution. And in a sense, and, I'll, and maybe we'll finish on this, um, much of what the scientific revolution, at the, the scientific revolution and the enlightenment at one level, at a first order level, are simply a rejection of previous conceptions of, of the universe on one hand and of politics on the other, right? So, 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 um, you know, we used to think that the Earth was the center of the universe. The scientific revolution says no, it's not. Right? Um, the Earth is, you know, sort of on the left in the corner somewhere. Um, uh, we used to think that monarchies are the best forms. That, 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 that you know, we should have monarchies as our governments. Well, now we think we should have liberal democracies as our governments. But at a deeper level, the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution were also, in a sense, epistemological revolutions. There were revolutions in with regard to how we should go about deciding these things. Yeah. And the reaction was against what I call, when I teach this stuff, an authority-based model of justification. So in the prior generation, in the prior era, in the Middle Ages, the basis upon which you uh, decided what was true with regard to the, the cosmos and on which you decided what was true with regard to political affairs was largely rooted in the authority of institutions, traditions, and individuals. And these institutions and individuals and traditions uh, impose their authority in a very authoritarian way. Yeah. And so I think that there is much, you know, we could have had a whole other discussion of autonomy. Yeah. Which I also think the modern, the modern, the modern philosophy overstates, wildly overstates, and overvalues. Um, but again, it's a kind of a reaction against a kind of an excessive, a prior excessive lack of autonomy 
Yeah. And so I think that both the case of, 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 the, of reason and autonomy, that both cases, reason and autonomy, the scientific and the revolution and the, and the, and the um, enlightenment, if you look at them philosophically, reflect, represent a kind of overcorrection. Yeah. Uh, for uh, for a kind of authoritarianism, both in belief and with regard to social organization, uh, that's entirely understandable. Yeah. What strikes me as not so understandable is how six, seven hundred years later, you're still doing the still peddling the same stuff, even after all these people have pointed it out. So what what kind of frustrates me perennially is how the, 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 the very fundamental critiques of people like Hume and Wittgenstein are just plain ignored, right? And I think that that does have a lot to do with the, the thing you said last, which has to do with professional considerations and to do with, with sort of a kind of a self-preservation instinct on the part of disciplinary philosophy that, gosh, you know, if we accept too much, you know, rational justification is our bread and butter. And if we accept too many of these critiques, it's going to be hard to justify all these all these philosophy jobs and all of these philosophy papers and all of this work that we do. Um, <clears throat> you know, Wittgenstein famously, you know, quit <laughs> after he was after he was done and went off and I think he was a gardener and then he was a school teacher and he did all sorts of other things. And uh, and Hume famously always talked about you know when we leave, what we do when we leave the study. And so um, <clears throat> I do think that, that that it's an overcompensation. I think it's an understandable one. I think it's more understandable in the 16 and 1700s than it's understandable in 2016, which is why I think it's still worth talking about. I mean, if this was just something that was that was in the immediate aftermath of the of the Enlightenment, I would have said, "Well, what do you expect? I mean, you just came off of 500 years, a thousand years of medieval of medieval uh, uh, intellectual and social life." Um, I and then it would be a matter of purely historical interest, but it's still a very dominant. Uh, trend today to the point to which by far the most prominent ethicist on the scene is the most rationalistic one and that's Peter Singer right uh, and so I don't think that anybody can say well this is just a historical matter and you know nobody's like that not only are people like this now the most powerful prominent people in the discipline are like this now and so I think it, it remains to be a relevant a relevant critique yeah, no, I, I, I certainly agree. And, Even and, if it's wrong, it's a relevant critique. Right. <laughs> especially, I mean, you can especially, if you, if you go and you take, you know, four years of undergraduate with having already listened to this dialogue that we just had, you'll start to see evidence of, of the rationalist view coming, you know, coming out um, uh, so. consistently throughout your, your education. Obviously, there's, it's not as though, by the way, it's not as though analytic philosophy doesn't, doesn't ever... Um, yeah, there's a counterculture, but it's small. Right. But also, also, I mean, some of these guys are taught even by people who are rationalists. The rationalists just fundamentally will, will disagree with them or yeah. get rid of them. Um, so it's not as though, just to be clear, it's not like there's, there's this burying conspiracy. Um, it's just, but, the, but that, that isn't to say that there aren't sociological reasons for the persistence of the view as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's almost a little bit like what happened to Wittgenstein. You seem to be, you seem to be the advocate of all the countercultures. That's, that's what you yeah, are. Yeah, I, I have, I, and it's funny because I was trained in a very rationalistic environment, both at the University of Michigan and at the CUNY Graduate Center. When I came out of graduate school, I was a highly rationalistic uh, philosopher. Um, um, uh, I was a, I was a Kantian in ethics, and I was a Platonist in philosophy of, of language and, and philosophy of mathematics, and 
Uh, I was certainly a sort of a foundationalist uh, in, in epistemology. Uh, my, my, these, my, my, my drifting over to the counter, what I were calling the counterculture, the anti-rationalist thread, took a long time. Partly it arose out of me being increasingly dissatisfied with the work I was doing and, and, and finding myself you know, increasingly skeptical, but it also had a lot to do with people I met in professional life. Uh, one person who I did a dialogue with on Vickerson, Ian Ground, had a huge impact on me in terms yeah. of my development. Uh, but there were others as well, um, uh, some people who really influenced me. Uh, and also just I did more reading. You know, I didn't encounter Wittgenstein very much in college or graduate school, partly because uh, he's really out of favor now. He was yeah. hugely in favor around the time of the Second World War, and then he's hugely out up through the 60s and 70s, and now he's hugely out of favor. And so, um, although people like Paul Horwich are trying to rehabilitate him. Yeah. And so, um, 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 my, my journey away from precisely the tradition I cr criticized, I used to be. Yeah. And, and, and one of the most vehement proponents of it. And so my, my migration over to this countercultural view, as we'll call it, has been slow and only happened in my professional life. It did not happen before. I, my education trained me like a good rationalist philosophy foot soldier. Uh, and it took, it took some deviant souls as yeah. well as a lot of reading to sort of, to sort of uh, um, pull me out of my dogmatic slumbers as uh, Kant can't be tamed. That's right. All right, I think we've I think we've done a, we've done good, but I think yeah. if we do more, we'll we we won't have done we won't be doing good. So I yeah, think we should probably call it right. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. So um, yeah, I guess if we continue to do these dialogues, we're gonna have to um release a a show name just for just for our dialogues. That's right. That's we've got some ideas, which I'm sure we'll uh yeah share with people soon. <laughs> All right, my friend. So um. I look forward to talking with you again soon. I'll see you over the Electric Agora. I'm probably going to be coming to New York again sometime in April. And awesome. so uh, we can have another, we can spend another day overriding moral values. And, um, <laughs> you're saying this live, man. And, um, <laughs> um, and uh, I'll see you. Yeah, sounds good, Dan. All right, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.